Well, uh, this morning we're con- going to continue our uh, study of the book of First John, First John chapter four, and we're going to cover verses thirteen and fourteen. And we've been making our way through this book, and I think one of the mistakes that we can make, that we can often make as Christians, as in- individually. Also, as a church and even in Christendom at large, one of the mistakes that we can sometimes make is to be imbalanced. What do I mean by being imbalanced? Well, at times we can overemphasize one part of the Christian life over against another part, that we place heavy emphasis on one side of Christianity versus another side. Things that are both true, we can overemphasize one side or the other, and that lack of clarity and mistaken emphasis can lead to confusion. That isn't surprising because the church is made up of sinners. Martin Luther said this, he said a man or humanity is like a drunken peasant. It's not complimentary. Humanity is a drunken peasant. If you lift him onto the saddle on one side, he will fall off on the other. You cannot help him no matter how hard you try. And that gives us the title for the sermon this morning, Staying on the Horse. Okay, staying on the horse. Now, I think that's a little bleak. Uh, he's talking about unbelievers there, but when it comes to the church, we can sometimes fall off the horse on either side. And his point, Martin Luther's point, is fitting. Ourselves individually, our church uh, at large, and then the church in the area around us and the church Christen, in Christendom is sometimes in danger of imbalance. And this morning, I want to an er- address an area where that danger is very real. It's very real. There are two sides of the horse here. And the two sides that I want to look at this morning are the spirit and the truth. The spirit and the truth. We can err, we can be in error by overemphasizing either side of that. I want to be very careful here. And I think history would bear this out. We can overemphasize the work of the spirit and we can lose sight of what is true And what we're left with is dangerous emotional mysticism. That's what we're left with. It's a danger. In fact, I think if there's a danger that's facing our culture now, that's the danger that's facing our culture. Uh, Books that are very confusing about this have been written. Books like Jesus Calling. There's an emotional mysticism there that is very dangerous. We feel like every time we get goosebumps, even when it's freezing cold, the Spirit must be leading us. And that's dangerous. But on the other side, and I think sometimes in reaction to that view, we can emphasize truth to the exclusion of emotional realities, that we find ourselves in a state of cold, dead orthodoxy. We can know the truth. We can have every I dotted and every T crossed theologically, and we can still be hard and unloving and unkind. That's just as dangerous. So we can err on both sides of this horse. There's danger on both sides. So there needs to be balance. There needs to be balance. And this is, of course, individual, but it's also true of us as a church corporately. And this morning, I think John actually tackles that issue for us. And if you look with me at point one, how does it fit? Again, I want to frame where we're coming to in this text. Now, again, if you remember, we've been working through the book of 1 John. The first two chapters are on the theme of light. God is light. And then the second three chapters, chapters three through five, the theme is that God is love. 
And in the middle, we find that God is righteous and that those who are born of God are righteous like him because he lives inside of them. Doesn't mean they don't sin ever, but they have God's seed abiding in them in such a way that they choose righteousness ultimately because they cannot choose the contrary. Now, we are obviously encased in flesh, and so we sin, and we fail, and we make mistakes, but ultimately we choose righteousness because God has caused us to be born again. And John says that righteousness is the, command, the fulfilling of commands, and the commands that he gives to us are to believe in Christ and to love one another. So that's what righteousness looks like, faith in Christ and then love of the brothers. And that brings us to where we've been for the past few weeks in 1 John chapter 4. In verses 7 and 8 of 1 John chapter 4, we see the command to love one another in the church and that that love is based on the character of God, that God is love at the end of verse 8. That's who He is. And if that is true and we are born of Him, then we ought to love one another because that is what His nature is doing in us as we live out His life in the body. And then in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, we saw the power of God's love on display. Look at verse 9 with me again. He says, by this the love of God was manifested. That's the main word there. It was manifested among us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. It is the power of God's love put on display in verse 9. And then we saw the power of God's love understood. What happens when we know that we are loved by God? It produces something in us in verse 10. Look at verse 10. He says, in this is love. So this is where love is going to come from. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. How are we going to love? How are we going to live out this life of the character of God, which is love? How's that going to happen? Well, the only way that's going to happen is for us knowing and understanding the love that God has for us. So now that one directional love of God to us, understood now, is going to have power to move us. And then last week, we saw in verses 11 and 12, the power of God's love at work in the church. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. That is our obligation as Christians, but God has given us the power to do that in His love for us. And then in verse 12, He says, No one has seen God at any time. In other words, you can't see the Heavenly Father. However, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. In other words, this is the purpose of God's love, that He would be seen in the love of the body here at Faith Bible Church. That's God's purpose, that God would be seen and known because of the love that we have for each other. That's what He's doing in this text. If you remember, we said last week that when we love each other, God's presence is seen and known among us, not only to ourselves, but ultimately to unbelievers, to people outside, and even to the angels. But here's the question that John wants to address this morning. How can we know that that is truly happening here at Faith Bible Church? How can you truly know that that's happening in any gathering of believers? And that's what John is going to conclude this paragraph with in verses 13 and 14. So this brings us to point two, God's presence in the church. Now, if you look at verse 13, John starts with a familiar phrase. He says, by this we know. By this we know. Now, anytime John uses the phrase, by this we know, what's he doing? Well, he's doing two things. First, he's going to show us a statement that can be confirmed experientially, right? He makes a statement, and then he says, here's how you know that statement is true. Experientially, this can be confirmed for you. 
So he's, he's made a statement, and then he's going to tell us how it can be confirmed, and then he will tell us how that can be confirmed. So you have a statement, a propositional truth that can be confirmed experientially, and then the question is how? How can that be confirmed experientially? And that's what he's doing when he says that. By this we know. He's building that logical structure for us. So, we're going to look at what he's doing here in this verse. So, the truth that can be experienced. What is the truth that can be experienced here? Well, he's going to go back to this idea of God's abiding presence. Look again at verse 13 with me. Look what he says. He says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Now, this is fascinating because he's just told us something in verse 12, right? What has he just told us in verse 12? He says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. His presence is seen in us when we love each other. So why would he then have to say, by this we know that God abides in us and we in him? Why does he have to do that? Because if we're loving each other, that should be enough proof that God abides in us. It should be. But John actually thinks of a deeper concern here. If you think about it, what John is trying to do is to be cautious about what it looks like for us to have God abiding among us. That's what he's actually doing. He's being cautious. He's saying, hey, I want to show you there's something more to this. We need to understand exactly what this means, that God would abide among us. There can be all sorts of things that can pass for the presence of God being seen in love, right? There can be all sorts of things. We can actually be confused by this. Of course, love can be faked, right? You can fake it. You've heard the phrase, fake it till you make it, I assume. We can fake love. And it could be misunderstood what love should be. And John wants to caution us against that. Now, we know, this is important, we know what love looks like externally, right? John has already told us what love looks like externally. Look back in chapter 3 with me and look at verse 16. He's already told us, he's informed us of what love should look like externally. He says, we know love love by this, that he, that is Christ, laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So, what does love look like? It looks like laying down your life for other people. But can you lay down your life for other people and not actually love them? Of course you can. Of course you can. In verse 17, he says, Whoever has the world's goods sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? In other words, love in action. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. He says, love in honesty, love without hypocrisy, love in action, love in laying down your life. But we can fake that. Can't we? If you're married, you know this. Don't you? Everyone who's married smirks slightly. You can say, do you love me? And the answer is, yes, of course, I unloaded the dishwasher. And that's not an answer. Right? That doesn't work. Or you can say, is anything wrong? No, nothing's wrong. And what's the real answer? Something is wrong. Now, we can fake it and we can continue on with our duties and not actually love that person. And John knows that. So John actually wants to address this. The question that John has to answer is this. He has to ask us, is the love among you real? 
Is it real? If God is actually abiding among us, if he's actually living among us, and we are abiding in him, that love should not only be seen in action, but it should be experienced. John is talking about something happening inside of each of us corporately. It's an experience of that love. These must be heart realities that then move to action, not Heart realities that are not there, but action that just fakes it. That's not okay for John. Now, we we should expect this. This is important. John is not content with external conformity. He's not content with that. He's not content with saying, just love each other and sort of fake it on Sundays. It's only two and a half hours. You'll be okay. Get home. Relax with the people you really like. John is not content with that sort of love. And we shouldn't be either. Why wouldn't John be content with that? Well, because he heard Christ pray, didn't he? Stephen read it for us this morning, but look with me at John 17. Turn back there. Look at John chapter 17. In John's own words, as he's writing down the prayer of Christ, John expresses what he's calling for here. This is remarkable. Stephen said when he introduced his prayer, this is the high priestly prayer. It's almost the very last words that the disciples hear from Christ right before he's arrested. And he prays for them at the beginning of the prayer. And then he prays for us. It's actually amazing. Look at verse 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these, that is the disciples who are present, but for those who also who believe in me through their word. Whose word? The disciples' word. Why do we believe in Christ? Because of the disciples' word, right? We hear from John that Jesus did what he did, and we're believing in Christ because of what John has told us. And look at verse 21. He says that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, We're never going to get to the bottom of this. (laughs) Even when I assign this for the call to worship text, it's kind of torture for Stephen because this one's like, whoa, it's really hard and it's incredibly deep. But what what does he say at the end of that verse? Just look at the end of verse 21. What does he say? He says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. What's the purpose of this unity that we share with the Father and with the Son and in the church? What's the purpose? It's to show the world that Jesus is real. What has John just said? No one's seen God at any time, but when we love each other, he abides among us. In other words, the love in the church is the proof that God is real. So John is connecting those ideas. Love, proof of the reality of God. Jesus connects love and union in the church, proof of the reality of God. Same connection. Does that make sense? Look at verse 22. He says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, that is Christ in us, and you in me, God the Father in the Son, that they, the church, may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. 
Again, wildly complex, but what's happening there? He's saying as the church loves one another, it proves that God is among them and that not only is God among them, but God is in them and they are in God. That union with God, that mystical union that exists between God and His church is real. And then he says, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am so that they may see the glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. In other words, what? What's the terminus of the love in the church? It's heaven where love in the church is never broken because we are gathered around the, the, the throne of Christ, loving one another in perfect unity, seeing the glory of the, of the Son. So what's happening here? Jesus connects all the same dots for us. John is taking the high priestly prayer and pulling it apart and saying, here's the pieces that need to be there. There's the unity of the church in love, the abiding presence of God in believers together, and the witness to the world that Jesus truly is God. All of that is happening in the church when we love each other. Jesus understands that. John understands that. And that's why John is describing something that is more than just duty, Just do the external and it's okay. Say hello, brother. Hello, sister, on a Sunday morning. Help someone move and you're good to go. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about your heart having affection, real heart affection for the people of God. It's not what you do, but it's what you're experiencing that Jesus is aiming at. Now We're going to talk more about that in a minute, and I want to address it in like a fuller way, okay? But this brings us to point three, which is the Spirit of God, and that's the Spirit's work. If you go back to 1 John chapter 4 again, look what he says in verse 13. Now, again, by this we know means there's truth that can be experienced, and here's how you know it, okay? So the truth that can be experienced is verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. That abiding reality is experienced. How? So we go one step down. Because he has given us of his spirit. (laughs) This is where John's so hard, honestly. (laughs) We had a staff meeting this week, and two-thirds of our staff meeting was us wrestling with this text. The guys helped me a ton because it's very hard. What's happening here? What's John's point? Why does he bring in the spirit? Well, it's true that for each of us as believers, we've been born again by the spirit, right? We have new birth. We have regeneration by the Spirit of God. Paul tells us that in Titus 3.5, that we've been born again by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's what's happened to us in our salvation. And Jesus says the same thing in John 3.8, right? Unless a man is born from above, born of God, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the individual truth. But John isn't talking individually here. He's not talking individually. He's talking corporately. How do we know that? There's two ways we know that. The first way is that John has already said this individually. Look up in chapter 3, verse 21. Look what he says there. I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 24. He says, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. Now, which commandments is he talking about? Look up in verse 23. This is his commandment, singular, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he has commanded us. So faith and love, which we said when we went through that text, is actually one commandment. Believe in the love of God and love is one commandment that Christ is giving here. 
the one who keeps that commandment, who loves one another, it says, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, that is, we abide in him when we love each other, and he in us. We know by this, now look at verse 24 again, we know, same idea, by this, by that mutual abiding through love, that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So what's he doing here? Individually, you personally know that the Spirit abides in you because you believe in the love of God for you and you love other people. You don't love other people perfectly, but you love other people because of the work that God has done in your heart. That's individual. And John is now saying the exact same thing. Just look over in chapter 4, verse 13, and look what he does. He says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Almost the exact same verse, but instead of it being individual... It's corporate. How do we know it's corporate? Well, he says, we, by this we know that he abides in us. For us to change from corporate in verse 12 to individual in verse 13 would be irrational. John doesn't want us to do that. The pronoun stays the same. So what is John saying here? He's taking the truth of your regeneration, applying it to the church corporately. Believers, true believers, together experience the grace of God in the work of the Spirit. They experience the grace of God in the work of the Spirit in the church. It's not just personal, it's corporate. The Spirit works. The Spirit works in each of us and then together interacts with all of us. So what John is saying is that when we love, God abides in us, verse 12, and that we know he's abiding in us because the Spirit is working in us corporately and causing us to experience that. So that feels a bit circular. That's oddly circular, John, J-O-H-N. But what's his point, right? His point is that the internal testimony of the Spirit, the reality of what the Spirit is doing inside of each of us corporately is the means by which we know that God is among us as we love each other. Now, that's a perplexing statement in one sense. Let me say it again. The internal testimony of the Spirit individually is the means by which we know that God is working among us corporately as we love each other. Now, what does that mean? The Spirit works in us by filling our hearts with His fruit. His love, His joy, true peace, true patience. And we corporately know that the Spirit works among us because He is working in our midst corporately. We love each other. There's true peace among us. There's true joy in the church as we fellowship together. There's true patience with one another because the Spirit is working in us and among us. That's what's happening. Again, what does that mean practically? Just on the ground level, practical, what does that mean? I don't think we can necessarily put real specifics to that except just to say that we experience this. He's saying that the spirit that dwells in each of us is the same spirit and therefore we are connected together by the same spirit and we know that. We experience that. You feel it. It is experiential. It is a mystical reality that's happening to you as you gather with the people of God because the Spirit's in you and the Spirit's in them and you all love each other. And you're like, wow, that's real. That's real. It's not faked. 
It's not just external, it's actually experienced internally. If you've ever been on a short-term missions trip, you've felt this. How many of you have ever not been on a short-term missions trip? Raise your hand. Raise your hand high. How many of you have have been on a short-term missions trip? Okay. One of the most striking things that happens to you in short-term missions is that you go to a place that is radically culturally different than anything you've ever known. Radically culturally different. I remember the first time I went to India, we got off the plane, it was 2 o'clock in the morning, we're driving through the city of Delhi, and I thought, we're going to die. There's no chance I'm coming home from this alive. So culturally different, you wouldn't believe it. And everything around you is different and strange and odd, and everything is different. The language is different, the people are different, the food is different, everything's different. You don't feel comfortable at all. And then you go to church. And you start sitting with the people of God, and you need a translator because you have no idea how to speak Hindi. And someone is translating, and you're talking to someone, and you realize, this is my brother. Like, I've never met this guy. I've never met this girl. It's my brother. It's my sister. That, this is a person who I love. And they're not there saying, I wonder who this crazy guy is. They're saying, oh, I love this guy. Why? Because the Spirit abides in both people. And you feel that reality. You can't manufacture that. It's real. It's real. Which is why we want you to go on short-term, short-term trips. We're going sending a trip to Germany in July. Stephen, raise your hand. Go see Stephen. Germany's not even that culturally different. Well, I mean, it is. Not that much. (laughs) What's happening here? There's a union that happens in the church, a unity that occurs in the church because the Spirit of God abides in each of us and we experience it. It is tangible. It's not just, yeah, I know there's unity. I get that point, theological proposition of truth. It's not just that. It is the experiential reality of that. That's what Paul says, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Listen to what he says. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk life in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, truth, with all humility, internal, not something that is just external, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, And listen, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit. Does he give any clarity on what that means? No, he's not saying that we all just agree doctrinally, we're good. He's saying there is unity that exists between us that is protected through love. That's what Paul is saying, and that is what John is saying. In verse 13, what he's telling us is that the work of the Spirit of God is what he does in each of us and then what he does with us together corporately that we experience in our hearts. And that is how we know that God is among us. We experience it. You can't help it. Just like when you get off the plane and you walk into church in India, in the exact same way you walk into church and you can't help but know not only that you are loved, but that you love and that that union is shared Now, before you say, John's a mystic, he makes me nervous, there's a danger here, right? In fact, in all things that are like this, that are experienced in the Christian life, there is a danger. What's the danger of experience? The danger of experience is that it can lie to you. 
experience can lie to you. And so John doesn't leave us at this place of spirit working, feel it. He actually goes one level below that in verse 14. He adds a safeguard, and this is point four, the spirit and the truth. The spirit and the truth. Verse 14 gives this foundation for the source of the spirit's work. It's a safeguard for us that the Spirit, yes, is working among us, but the safeguard that holds us up is that it isn't the Spirit alone, but it's the Spirit through the truth that God uses. The truth is, in fact, the basis for the unity that we share in the Spirit and the love that He produces in us. That's so important. The truth of God's Word is the basis for the unity that we share in the Spirit and the love that He produces. And we'll look at both of those. The first one is in point A, the apostolic witness. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, again, this is interesting. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One is the language of the Father sending the Son has a meaning, right? That has a meaning. It's loaded with meaning. What is that? Well, it's a reflection of God's love. It's the reflection of God's character and holiness. Those are all seen in that. In fact, this is the whole gospel. The Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. The fact that He would send Jesus to be the Savior means that every single one of us needs saving. We're sinners. And the fact that He sent Him is a sign of His mercy and love for unrighteous people like us. It's a statement of the gospel. And I would just say here, if you don't understand that, or if you don't know what it means to be filled with the Spirit and to enjoy the love of Christ for you, you need to hear what's about to be said in this verse. But here's the question. John says, verse 14, we have seen and testify. Who saw and testified that Jesus came into the world? Who saw and testified of that? Clearly the apostles did, right? They saw it. In fact, just look back in chapter 1 with me in verses 1 through 4. Look what John does here. He says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So who's John talking about? The word of life. It's Christ. He says, We saw him. We heard him. We touched him with our hands. John gave Jesus a hug. That's literally what happened for John. So he's testifying of that. And he says, verse 2, the life was manifested. Same word. The life was manifested. It was seen. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. But look what he says in verse 3. This is fascinating. He says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. Fellowship with us in what? And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What's John saying? What I'm saying to you is so that you can see and you can testify that God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. He wants you and I to see and to testify of that truth. John has this purpose. John saw and he testified of Christ. But there is a corporate reality to that. And this is point B, our corporate confession our corporate confession. Again, I told you the pronouns don't change between verse 12 and verse 13. See that? In verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. John is speaking corporately and he says the way 
that we know this truth is because we have seen corporately, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, before we take that apart anymore, I don't want you to stumble over the phrase Savior of the world, right? Don't stumble over that. That statement could be taken to mean that Jesus is the Savior of every person in the world, that Jesus saves everybody. Or it could be taken to mean that Jesus is the Savior of every kind of person in the world, which is the same or the equivalent as saying He is the only possible Savior for everyone in the world. That the Father has sent the Son to be the one possible Savior for every person in the world. The only way to be saved is through Christ. Now, it's hard to tell from this passage which one John is using. But what's interesting is that the only other place that this occurs in the Bible is in the book of John. Look with me at John chapter 4 real quickly. John chapter 4. You should be familiar with John chapter 4. It's the story of the woman at the well. The story of the woman at the well is fascinating because what does Jesus say about true worship? Look at John chapter 4 and verse 24. He says, God is spirit. In other words, no one's ever seen him. And those who worship him must worship in spirit, that is, inside of them, from the heart, and in truth. Those two things have to come together. Truth and spirit have to come together. And, and the next thing that happens is that the Samaritans hear from this woman about who Christ is, and they come to him, and they worship him. And if you look at John chapter 4, verse 42, actually look at verse 41, he says this, Many more believed because of his word... And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, why would John take that exact same phrase and repeat it in 1 John chapter 4? Because what he's saying is that the experience of spirit and truth understood is coming from this truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, when the Samaritans said that, what were they talking about? They weren't saying that Jesus saves every person. What was the problem between Jews and Samaritans? They didn't like each other. And Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. And Jesus comes into Samaria, and this woman comes to Christ, even though she's not a Jew, she's a Samaritan, she's a, she's a half-blood, and she comes to Christ, and then a drove of Samaritans come to Christ, and they say, this is the Savior of the world. In other words, this is the one Savior for Jew and Samaritan. That's what's being communicated by John here and by Christ. So, that's what he's saying when he says Savior of the world. Now, go back to 1 John again, okay? So, what's John doing here? John is reasoning with us, Right? He's reasoning with us. And what he tells us in verse 14 is that we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. In other words, we testify that Jesus is the one way of salvation for all mankind and every single person in the world needs a Savior. That's what our testimony is. Now, that's an interesting language 
phrasing for a corporate reality, seeing and testifying. You might say, well, I agree it's true. Yes, I, I affirm that truth, but I don't know if I can say I've seen it. Like, what does it mean to see that? But that's the language that the Bible often uses for faith, for faith, for belief, for trust. Paul says that believing is a spiritual sight of the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Jesus himself said that seeing is, that, that faith, that believing is spiritual sight in John 11.48. He's telling us that what we see, we affirm. John already has told us that the apostolic witness exists so that we can see and testify. John has told you that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that He has come into the world because the Father has sent Him. That is what John has said. Do you believe that? And if you truly believe that, you see the glory of God in it, and that changes you. And then you testify that that's true. That's what John is saying in verse 14. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. All true believers have seen with their hearts, and are witnesses to the fact that the one true Savior of the world is Christ, because they know Him. They know Him. And more than that, where have we seen this language of the Father sending the Son? Where do we just see that? We just saw it in verse 9, didn't we? What is the sending of the Father, uh, the Father's sending of the Son? It's the proof of the love of God for us. So not only are we affirming the propositional truth statement that God sent His Son to be the one true Savior of the world, but we are also acknowledging that it is the love of God the Father for unrighteous sinners that would cause Him to do that. John is saying that we have believed and are witnesses to the love of God for sinners in the sending of His Son. Now, why is that so important? Why is that so important? Because it protects us. Protects us. Protects us from what? From drifting off into false teaching in the name of the Spirit. The groundwork that keeps us safe, the basis for truth that keeps us safe and keeps us unified and is the power source for love through the Spirit is the gospel truth of the sending of the, of, of the Son by the Father to be the Savior for our sins. That's the thing that unifies us and protects us. So John says, look, experience the Spirit. Experience the joy of love in the church. Enjoy that reality because that's what God has for you in the church and you should be experiencing it. And that's how you know that God is among you. But do it in the truth, the truth of the gospel. We have to do both. So John protects Spirit and truth in these two verses. We must experience the power of the Spirit of God in our midst and be grounded in the truth of God's Word. As we do that, our love shows the world that God is real. So what do we do with this? I know this is a long sermon. Forgive me. What do we do with this? This is point five, application. Okay? Application. The answer goes back to our quote from Martin Luther. What do we need to do? We can fall off the horse into spiritual mysticism. We can fall off the horse into theological hardness. So what do you need to do? We need to stay on the horse. <laughs> That's it, right? 
We all have a natural proclivity one way or the other. Each of us does, right? Some of you are more cerebral, and you hyper-intellectualize everything, and you want to take it all apart, and you have minds like meat grinders, and that's a gift. And some of you are like, yeah, yeah, that's all fine, but what does it feel like? And that's a gift. That's not bad. That's a gift. We all have a natural proclivity one way or the other. And on the one side, we need to be careful that we don't allow our theology to choke out our tenderness of spirit and love for one another in the truth. It's so easy to fall off this horse. That's what happened to the church in Ephesus, right? Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We won't turn there, but what happens? They have all the doctrine right, and they're doing all the right things. And Jesus says, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. Love. It's not just so that you can pass systematic theology courses. That's empty if it doesn't cause you to love Christ and love each other. In fact, Jesus says, repent or I will take away your lampstand. He says it's not okay to just be a theologian if it doesn't lead to change of heart. We can be so focused on theology that we forget that all theology should lead to doxology. That we should worship Christ in spirit because of what is true. And it should lead to orthopraxy, right? What we do. Does the love of Christ cause you to love others? Does your theology move you out to love other people? That's what it is. In fact, Paul says this, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, the goal of our instruction is what? Masters of divinity degrees. No, the goal of our instruction is love. All the instruction has as its ultimate terminus, love. That's what he wants. So we got to be cautious that we're not theologians who don't truly love Christ or other people. And on the other side, We have to be careful that we don't make the mistake of overemphasizing the emotional and spiritual realities in the church to the exclusion of excellent, robust theological pursuit, laboring to know and understand. We have to do both of those things. We have to. And I would say that because of how John structures these verses, robust gospel theology When you get in the Bible and you wrestle with it, that is the source for the Spirit's work of love among us. The theology leads to that in us. So we want to work hard to know. We want to work hard to know. Do you labor to know God in your quiet times in the morning? Do you sit with your Bible and say, what does this mean? What's he talking about here? Or do you read a proverb and you're like... Stamped, good to go. That's not wrong. Proverbs are great. But labor to know God. Your time in the Word is not to check a box. It's to know the creator of the universe. Labor to know Him and worship Him. We want to labor to study, labor to understand, work hard. And in all of our knowledge and in all of our study and in all of our understanding that we would worship Christ, that we would be filled with the Spirit of God that we would love each other in the church from the heart. That's the balance. All of us tend to fall off the horse one way or the other. (laughs) I know how I fall off the horse. How do you fall off the horse? 
We want to grow in this. We all do. We all need to. And that's the structure that God gives us, and that John gives us here. And that's the way that we glorify God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, the truth of the gospel, the promise of forgiveness and salvation. And Lord, I know that each of us, all of us, we all fall off the horse one way or the other. Lord, you know my own tendencies. Lord, we all struggle in various ways. Lord, we thank you that we can see and testify that Jesus is our Savior and that corporately we can know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Lord, we know it, we see it. Lord, we thank you for robust theology that teaches us this. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to labor over your word to understand it. Not so that we can be theologians. But Lord, that in everything we learn and everything that we study and everything that we work hard to know, Lord, that we would love you and worship you. Lord, I pray for those among us who want to worship, but struggle. Lord, I pray that you would show them that it is the word that you have given us that leads us to worship. Lord, that you would pull them into the text and cause their hearts to rejoice in what they see there. Lord, I pray for those among us who tend toward theological acumen and not spiritual life. Lord, I pray that you would show them even this week, as they study, as they read, as they seek to understand, Lord, that it is unto worship, that you would lift their hearts in glorious worship of Christ, Lord, that they would love him, that they would know him better. And Lord, we pray for all of us, whichever side of the horse we tend to fall off of, Lord, I pray that you would continue to protect us, Lord, that you would cause us to both know and experience the love of Christ, and that because of that, Lord, you would cause us to love each other, that you would be seen and known in our midst, and that you would be glorified. Lord, not only from those who don't know you, but from the angels in heaven. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your son. In his name we pray. Amen.